Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Jeffrey M. Roach here with the Holistic Leadership Podcast, and we are so excited to have with us today Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld. Uh, Dr. Ehrenfeld is the president of the American Medical Association, inaugurated as president in June of 2023. He is also the senior associate dean, tenured professor of anesthesiology, and director of the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And he was elected to the American Medical Association Board of Trustees in 2014. I think there's a couple other things that are important to note though. Dr. Ehrenfeld is one of the most sought after uh, speakers in all things medicine uh, globally. And he has definitely not only been a first of many in so much of his work, uh, he's also a combat veteran who was deployed to Afghanistan during both Operation During Freedom and Resolute Support Mission. And he was honored for his work in capturing and supporting the lives of LGBTQ plus people and recognized in 2015 with a White House News Photographers Association Award and in 2016 with an Emmy. And so obviously uh, we're not just talking to the president of the Mer American Medical Association, but somebody that's been awarded multiple times at the highest levels. Dr. Ehrenfeld, so wonderful to have you here with us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Great. So, um, you know, I want to talk with you, obviously, in your work, you have always been a very, very strong people person. Uh, from the moment I first met you uh, back in, in uh, 2019 at Rock Health, I could tell a uh, very different type of leader uh, in many ways and, and, you know, so people focused in everything that you do. When you uh, talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you are history breaking, history making uh, in your role at AMA. Talk to us about when that moment happened. You know, I mean, you've worked hard to get there, but talk to us about like, what was that like, that experience of being elected, uh, you know, as the president of the AMA and, and, and at a very young age uh, as president <laughs> and also, you know, as the first openly, um, you know, gay individual uh, of not just uh, of AMA, but I think pretty much all of, all of associations. Well, it's it. Thanks for that. It's it's been a, a humbling experience, and and I tell you, the thing that makes it so meaningful, um, you know, I've I've been humble. I've been blessed with lots of accolades along my you know professional journey, uh, civilian and military career. Um, but when your peers um, sort of give you the nod um, and express their confidence in you as a leader. Um, that's the most meaningful, right? Whether whether that's uh, my work uh, in the Navy uh, or being elected by the physicians of the nation to to lead the AMA this year as president, um, it, it's it's a it's a remarkable, humbling experience. And um, you know, when I when I went into my first AMA meeting in in two thousand one as a first year medical student, I never could have imagined um, that someday, you know, 20 something years later, um, I, I would be at the helm and, and yet here I am. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that it was a bit of a stretch for, for me to imagine that. One is um, I'm actually a, a shy, quiet introvert by nature. Uh, that's just me. Um, but I, I've, I've learned how to, to use my voice and, and the power that comes with the privilege of being a physician uh, to try to advocate um, for patients and for LGBTQ people and, and for health equity. Um, that's a learned skill um, that, that clearly I've, I've had to, to practice and, and refine. Um, but also the, the AMA was not inclusive uh, 20 years mm -hmm. ago when I joined. Um, you know, the, the policy debates I heard were jarring. Mm. Um, the arguments against inclusivity um, based in bias and, and homophobia. Um, and there's been a sea change. And, and that 
organizational transformation um, is evidence that, that we can uh, push forward uh, and and ultimately do the right thing for for patients and physicians. So so here I am, uh, you know, all these years later, uh, on stage with my family, with my husband, with our two boys, surrounded by you know friends and family, taking the oath of office. Uh, which I swore on a copy of the Code of Medical Ethics from the 1800s. Wow. Um, and it was a, a profound moment. Um, of course, my, my four-year-old um, uh, just expected that he should recite it with me because uh, <laughs> it was a responsive thing. So he repeated it alongside, uh, which was, of course, adorable. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a challenging year. We, we've got um, a lot uh, on our shoulders um, as physicians. The healthcare system has never been stretched um, as much as it is today. Um, the country has never perhaps been been more divided in, in a recent era. Um, when you think about uh, the politics of, of what's happening, how that impacts the practice of medicine. Um, and so it's a, it's a challenging time to be a, a leader in medicine, um, but it's such an important, critical time as we try to, to move past and ultimately make the healthcare system more equitable more accessible um, and higher performing. You know, there's so much to unpack there, and but I want to start with, I'm shocked that, to hear that you're an introvert because, I mean, having seen you work <laughs> rooms, I mean, you've definitely worked hard, uh, you know, to do that. But, but I'm guessing even within that understanding, there must have been a moment in medical school or even before that, when did you realize that you had a desire to lead? You know, um, certainly, I think actually in high school mm -hmm. is when it sort of clicked. And and I, I, I was privileged. I went to Phillips Academy Andover outside of Boston, um, wonderful prep school. Um, and I, I remember this moment recognizing that I had been given such an important gift with a, a world-class stellar education, putting me on a trajectory that so few people in, in the country, let alone the world, really, really have the opportunity to benefit from. And, and I remember in high school thinking that I have to do something with this. I, I have to find a way um, to give back to our great nation. Um, and, uh, you know, along the way I, that that has has been exerted through uh, professional work as a physician, leadership of the AMA, military service with the Navy um, and a host, host of other things. But I've, I've always been driven by this desire that, that really goes back to high school. Um, to do something with the gift that I was given of, of education um, and capabilities. And, 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 uh, and I, you know, um, I, I'm a short sleeper, um, a lot of capacity for work, um, and it uh, drives my husband nuts. Um, but I've always felt like I needed to do something with that. And uh, again, this year has been a, a real privilege to, to lead the AMA. You know, it's, it's interesting when you hear an anesthesiologist say they're a short sleeper. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know... It's interesting too. It, you talked about about this. Uh, your whole career, you have been a leader in advancing health equity. Um, it's been a hallmark of, of your career, and now to think that you have the privilege of leading it uh, at really a, a global level uh, as the AMA president. Um, I'm, I'm curious, how do you approach uh, you know that topic? To your point, um, you know we're at a time where there's so much debate again on the issue of diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, and really belonging. Um, yet, you know, to your point, how do you advance health equity when you don't talk about those things? Um, you've been on the Hill, uh, you've been everywhere, um, you know, talking about, you know, these issues. And I, I always notice you do it with grace, but you don't really back down. Um, how do you yeah. prepare yourself and how do you 
talk to other physicians. So let's probably talk more about like the younger and, and future uh, physicians to help them understand that uh, while it may be very divided, we've got to stay rooted in advancing these causes because it's really for our patients. You know, a um, couple of things. First, uh, when I have the privilege of, of speaking publicly, uh, whether that's that's to you or, or or on the Hill or at the White House or wherever it happens to be, um, I, I'm not speaking as as Jesse Aaron, but I'm speaking as president of the AMA. And 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 there's something very special and very powerful um, about how the AMA sets policy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not you know a bunch of people in a dark smoky room <laughs> figuring out what we're going to do. Um, it is an open democratic process where 190 state and specialty societies send their leaders, more than 600 uh, voting representatives twice a year um, to debate and argue and decide what our policy is going to be. And, um, you know, this used to happen in Washington, and I don't think it does really much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But the most special part of that process is after people argue with each other, they 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 show their best evidence. Um, they make impassioned pleas for whatever policy is is up for debate. Um, they vote, and then they go out to dinner, mm-hmm. and and they they recognize that at the end of the day, we're all colleagues with the same objective, which is keeping America healthy. And and I think I think there's a piece of that that's been lost, unfortunately, in in, in politics writ, writ large, um, but it's so essential to the AMA and, and who we are. And so. Our, our policy base and it, it is deep, right? We have we have policy on almost every health topic you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, it it is it is so powerful because it comes from the physicians of America, um, not just an executive committee or a president or CEO or or a leader. And there's something very special about that. So when I when I'm engaging in policy debates, whether it's on health equity um, or payment issues or the sustainability of the Medicare program, um, you know we've got that policy base. From our democratically, uh, you know, appointed House of Delegates that that's made those mm-hmm. decisions, um, and and that I think really um, is is uh, it gives us a leg up when we're sort of engaging with individuals. The other thing I would say is, you know, I always try to understand my audience, and and that's so important. You know, whenever I I'm in a on a large ballroom, you know, it's it's rare that everybody in that room has the exact same perspective. We just know that's not the reality. People come at issues. Uh, from all political walks of life and, and all perspectives, all professions, and, and that's fine. So I, 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 I always sort of think to myself, you know, we have a policy and a perspective. There'll be people who agree with it. There may be people who disagree with it. How do you understand the people who disagree with it, why they do, um, and how can you help shape a conversation so that the ears don't turn off right away? And I, I think that's so important is to try to share your perspectives in a way that they can be uh, received, even if there there isn't agreement. And, and unfortunately, um, I think that's uh, that's often lost uh, when, mm-hmm. when when I see folks um, trying to hammer on an issue, um, you know, in, in the greater sort of political spectrum. One of the areas that I've also noticed uh, of you is is you really understand and value the interdisciplinary nature uh, of health care. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, you know, to, 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 I mean, from an inclusivity perspective, right. I mean, for, there's been times where that was not necessarily the case, uh, probably back in the day, the early days of AMA, where it was very, we're AMA, that's ANA, that's, you know, AHA, for example, but you are a leader that you see through all of that. I'm curious when you look at, um, you know, obviously to your earlier point, we're, we're really at this, you know, not so perfect storm, but but really a most challenging time probably from a healthcare workforce perspective. To your point, physician burnout, um, you know, physicians leaving, same thing in nursing, same thing in pretty much all aspects of healthcare. 
When you look at that, what do you believe we need to learn from it to really help solve that? Um, you know, from a medical school perspective, from a culture standpoint, what do, what do we need to be thinking about? So a couple of things. One is um, our patients get the best care when we have high performing teams. And that's a lesson that, uh, you know, was 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 just so ingrained in me um, through my, my military experience. Mm. Um, I have never seen teams perform at the level that I experienced when I was deployed. Wow. Um, and, and the reason is, you know, when you, when you, when you eat, sleep, work, um, you know, hang out with the same team day after day after day in a stressful situation, you can anticipate every move that the other person's going to make. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when, a when a, when a casualty was flown in, brought into the trauma bay and, you know, before the trauma mm -hmm. surgeon, you know, chief of trauma opens his mouth, I know what he's going to say, right? I, I know what, you know, my corpsman is going to do who stand on the right-hand side of the bed, I, I, you know, and, and, uh, and unfortunately, um, because, you know, we have a lot of people who cycle in and out of teams in the civilian sector, you, you just, you don't get that experience. Um, but I've seen that. I, I've seen those, those, those opportunities for people to really, really come together. Um, you know, the, the AMA strongly supports physician-led team-based care. And, and the foundation for that is that, you know, we recognize every member of the team has something unique, mm -hmm. something valuable that they contribute that leads to a better patient outcome. Certainly, I experienced this as an anesthesiologist working with nurse anesthetists and working with anesthesia assistants. Um, and, and in my mind, patients get the best care when we work together and not in silos. And so, um, you know, there, there are definitely efforts nationally to remove physicians from care teams. We think that that's not a good idea mm -hmm. and ultimately shortchanges folks. Um, the other thing I would say is on, on the workforce side writ large, you know, um, we just do not have enough people. We don't have enough physicians. Uh, you know, the AAMC projects between 40,000 and 130,000 short in the next 10 years. We don't have enough nurses. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough PAs. We don't have enough pharmacists. We are just short. Um, so we need to expand workforce. The AMA is obviously squarely focused on expanding physician workforce. Um, we've opened a lot more medical schools in the last 10 years, um, but we haven't expanded the training spots for, for residency. So we've got a lot of students who graduate and then don't have a place to get their family medicine training or their surgery training um, because those those training spots are actually tied to uh, Medicare funding that was capped in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And un unfortunately, it just hasn't really budged. So um, we've got this sort of blockade in the training pipeline that's a problem. Um, we need to expand training uh, across all of healthcare, but we also need to better support our existing workforce. And we have never seen the levels of professional burnout among physicians, among nurses as recorded during COVID. Mm -hmm. And that has not all gone away. And unfortunately, uh, because of stigma, uh, because of structural problems, because every time I apply for a medical license for the last five years, there's been a question, have you ever received mental health counseling, mm -hmm. psychiatric services, been admitted in your life? Um, and, and people know those questions are there. And so they avoid getting the help that they need mm -hmm. because they don't want to lose their medical license. They don't want to get stuck in front of a credentialing committee. So we, we need to make it easier for people to, to practice in their field. We got to remove the obstacles, get rid of the things that suck the joy out of medicine, prior authorization, faxing documents back and forth. <laughs> I mean, it's nonsense. Um, we need to support the workforce. We need to make sure that they can get help when they need it stigma free. Um, and then we need to expand the workforce. We've got to do all of those things. If we don't do all of those things in concert, 
um, Americans will suffer. There, there just will not be people to go around. Um, and even if we do all of those things, we're going to have to think about how do we redesign the healthcare delivery system using technology, AI, other tools to be more effective, more efficient, allow people to engage in their care if we want to enjoy the kind of health that's going to be seen in other developed nations. Yeah. So well said. You know, AAMC this year, they um, had an author and speaker on the issue of poverty. And um, it was really, really powerful to look around the room and see so many uh, medical students, physicians, and others really understanding that this is really all of our responsibility. Yeah. Um, you've been a leader in understanding that SDOH has been a major part of all aspects of medicine. I'm curious from your vantage point, do we need to take it a step further though in medical school? Or are there things that we should be thinking about from an interdisciplinary nature so that we can truly address, you know, what's, what still is, is, you know, probably one of our biggest challenges within medicine? Yeah, it's interesting. So the whole science of healthcare delivery, which is kind of referred to now as the the third science, you've got basic science, clinical science, and now health system science, which is how does the care actually get to the patient? Mm. Um, and, and that's the place that most medical schools now are starting to incorporate much more meaningful, deep curriculum around understanding drivers of health, things like poverty, mm-hmm. um, homelessness, food insecurity, um, the things that actually um, lead to people saying that your zip code impacts your health more than your genetic code, which is a, a shocking but but true statement in, in many cases. Um, so that, that education is, is, is starting to happen. Education's fine. But at the end of the day, you need a responsibility and ownership. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of healthcare, hospital systems, physicians, nurses don't really understand public health. Mm. And I think a lot of public health doesn't really understand the healthcare system. And even when they do understand each other, there's often not agreement about who's responsible. So, you know, who's responsible in Milwaukee where I live mm-hmm. for ending homelessness? Mm. Is that the healthcare system's responsibility. Um, certainly, it drives up costs when you have people come into the emergency department because they have nowhere to get warm, um, or coming uh, into free clinics because they have nowhere to get care. Um, it's not an efficient, effective use of resources, and yet that's happening every day um, of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Whose responsibility is that? Is that the health system's responsibility to end homelessness? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some health systems that have dug in and, and have street outreach teams and, and are working around economic development and, and trying to lift people out of poverty. I think those are the exception, not the rule. Um, so until there's a shared, not just understanding of what the problems are and what the drivers are, but an action plan for who's got accountability uh, for stepping in to deal with some of these challenges, we're going to continue to see more of the same. Hmm. You have uh, been speaking a lot lately around AI. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting time, so much discussion. I want to ask you, when you look at uh, particularly the role of, of AI and physicians, you know, when you look into 2024, uh, where do you see that conversation continuing to go? Um, you know, how should the future uh, physicians of, of, of our world be thinking about it as well? Those that are in medical school, those that are aspiring, how should they be thinking about it? Well, we actually just released survey data uh, a week or two ago um, from a nationally representative sample of physicians that was fielded this summer. Um, and an equal number of physicians are as excited about AI <laughs> as they are concerned about AI. Um, and I, I think that's right. You know, we've been burned 
by technology in the past that has just not lived up to its promise, the painful <laughs> deployment of electronic health records, the number one physician dissatisfier for years um, because these tools were just not designed with our workflows in mind. They were not designed to prioritize usability of the end user. Um, so we, we need to make sure that the tools live up to the hype mm-hmm. and um, and uh, figuring out, you know, where were they developed? How are they validated? How do we know that they don't reinforce biases? How do we actually make sure that they improve health equity and don't worsen it? There are a lot of questions that, that need to be answered. The physicians want answered, mm-hmm. you know, fundamentally, does the thing work? Um, that's not a simple question anymore. Um, you know, for, for a new drug and a new biologic agent, right? Uh, a new injectable, you know, there's a study, it went through FDA, you know, I can read table one and see, you know, what patients it was tested in. Um, that's not likely to happen for an AI software algorithm that's making care recommendations or suggestions to a clinical team. Um, so, you know, how do we build that trust? Mm. Um, for, for me, it starts with transparency, uh, knowing that the tool's there. And I'll, and I'll give you, I'll give you a quick story. So, um, as as I think you're well aware, um, tragically we lost two 737 Max airliners. Um, and the reason those planes crashed was because, ironically, of an AI-enabled safety system. Mm-hmm. So when when Boeing, you know, created this plane, the the larger um, engines um, would drag on the ground if they put them in the original configuration on on the wing. So they mounted them further up, but that naturally causes because of aerodynamics the the nose to pitch up Mm. in 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 normal flight and this is well described um so boeing built an ai safety system that just gently pushes the nose of the plane down when it detects it going up Mm. um the problem was uh there was a sensor malfunction the plane was flying normally the sensor thought that it was going up and so the ai safety system pushed those two planes into the ground Mm. now the shocking thing is that the pilots of those doomed aircraft had no awareness of the AI safety system. It was not in the operations manual. Wow. There was no training on the safety system. So that's a hard lesson, right? That that we need to make sure we don't repeat that same mistake. Imagine I walk into an operating room mm. and there's a ventilator that has an AI algorithm that's set to wean a patient's respiratory support, but I don't know it's there. Mm-hmm. We would ne- We should never accept that. Right. We should at least know that there's a system we may not know exactly how it's doing what it's doing because of deep learning and machine learning and all the crazy math that goes on. It, it may not ever be possible to know really what it's doing, but to know that there's a system that is uh, doing something uh, that's related to patient care is so critical. That's the only way we can supervise it. It's the only way we can correct it. It's the only way you can pull the plug, turn it off and take over, um, which in some cases is obviously going to be required. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, even to your point, right, we've heard, you know, even recently with with Tesla's being recalled, right? So for the self-driving. So, I mean, there's just so much to your to your point, especially when we're dealing with lives that we have to really, truly unpack and really make sure that it's it's gone through the right appropriate yeah. process. Um, you know, by the way, I do, I do not own a self-driving car. <laughs> <laughs> when you, um, you know, I'm curious, you also regularly speak to a lot of youth. Um, you know, not just as AMA president, but obviously even in your work uh, in academia. Um, when you speak with them today, what do you what do you tell them uh, as to why they should consider medicine as a career? There is nothing more satisfying 
than a career in medicine. I, I can't imagine any other job that would bring me such joy. There, There is nothing more rewarding than walking into a patient's room before surgery, seeing somebody frightened, seeing somebody scared, um, putting my hand on their shoulder, mm. getting down at eye level, putting them at ease, getting them through a surgery safely, and then watching them and their families walk out of the hospital without a brain tumor or, or whatever whatever the surgery happens to be. There is nothing better than that. It just doesn't get better than that. Um, we need bright people. We need passionate, empathetic people in the profession. And, and healthcare has got a lot of problems, but there's still nothing more rewarding that I could imagine doing at the end of the day. Mm. When you, um, when you, you know, one of the challenges that many people have, have cited, and I know even AMA has, has done some work in this space is, is really, uh, the international aspects of, of, you know, physicians that come from another country come here to the United States. I know many have said, we've got to figure this out because we've got really good talent that are here, but they've got to go through a whole process. Any thoughts on, on what we can do there, um, to really help, you know, help get them back into doing what they can do best? Yeah, so 25% of practicing physicians in the U.S. were trained abroad. Mm -hmm. Those are the international medical graduates. So it's a huge component already of our workforce. We rely on those physicians. We need those physicians. We need more of those physicians. And uh, unfortunately, we we do really silly things. So we'll we'll let an international graduate do a residency program in the U.S., train, learn our systems, be very effective, become a part of their community for three, four, five years. And then we require them to go home, to leave for two years before they can come back and get the right visa. Um, it's nonsense. And uh, we, we have bipartisan bills in Congress that we would like to move forward to create some visa waivers for, for those physicians who are already trained. They trained here. We know that they're effective and they can contribute to their community's health. Uh, but because of uh, immigration requirements right now, mm. Uh, they, they, they can't stay. Um, unfortunately, immigration reform is a, is a challenging issue at the federal level in Congress. And uh, we still are optimistic that we might get a little bit of relief, particularly because we have so many workforce shortage areas where we know international medical graduates can, can make a difference today. Mm. You know, when you think about it, as you said, how humbled you were, you're, you're serving uh, as the AMA president, and you also have, you know, uh, the first uh, highest ranked LGBTQ plus member of the community at HHS and Dr. Rachel Levine. And you know, uh, as a Pennsylvanian, uh, many years, how proud I was to have Dr. Levine as our health secretary. Um, you know, you have worked very closely with Dr. Levine. What does it mean to you and the community uh, to have someone um, of her caliber and quality from a leadership standpoint at HHS? And what, what do you, you know, what are your thoughts on, on the work that, you know, that continues to occur there to advance such important work? Well, um, let me say it warms my heart to see uh, Admiral Levine, Dr. Levine, uh, in her role at HHS. She's an incredible leader. I've known her for a long time. Um, and, uh, and, and the capabilities that she's bringing to that role are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And, and we, are, we, are, we are lucky to have her there. Um, visibility and representation matter. You know, when, when I was a medical student, I did not see other out role models. Mm -hmm. um, I did not see leaders in organized medicine that I could, could look up to. And, and, and I hope that there's somebody out there uh, listening to this um, who, who sees the visibility, recognizes what it means, and it gives them some hope. 
um, for for their own trajectory in in medicine or their career or whatever it happens to be, um, to recognize that there there is a pathway, um, and that we depend on having diverse people in a whole lot of jobs around the nation if we're going to achieve the greatness that I know is possible for America. So well said. You know, we're we're getting close to time, but I want to you know ask you as we enter you know a new year, um, twenty twenty four. A really interesting time in healthcare and in medicine. Um, I know you've been providing some thoughts, uh, you know, around how to prepare for the new year from, you know, from from your perspective. You know, what would you share, uh, you know, from a high level that people need to be keeping an eye on from a from a medical standpoint, um, and what can we all do to ensure that we're supporting, you know, all of those on the front lines of our of our medical system? Well, I think the biggest threat to American medicine and health right now is misinformation and mm-hmm. disinformation. And uh, I would encourage folks if they have questions about, you know, what they're hearing, what they're seeing online, what they need to do, talk to their doctor. And um, you know, we we unfortunately have seen things like last year, uh, there was a moment where routine childhood vaccinations in every county in the U.S. had dropped. Mm-hmm you know, vaccines for measles and mumps and rubella, tetanus, things that we know are so important to preventing disease outbreaks. And that's because of misinformation. Uh, and that's, I think, a lingering challenge that uh, is not going away anytime soon because of COVID. And so if we're going to embrace health, that starts with the individual. It starts with making sure that you do all the things that you can, uh, getting vaccines, eating, sleeping, uh, diet, exercise, all of the stuff. And if you have questions about how to do that, you know, don't believe uh, a TV actor uh, on late night TV uh, or on the internet. Talk to your doctor, go to a credible source, and certainly the AMA website's a great place to start. Yeah. Dr. Murthy, uh, as our Surgeon General, has has called that out to your point as well. Um, the other thing he's really called out is that uh, in the workplace, organizations really need to be thinking about how to address mental health. Any thoughts you want to share there uh, on that topic that, that leaders and organizations should be thinking about? Well, we need to we need to destigmatize mental health. Um, mental health, physical health are equally as important. We need to make it easier for people to get help when they need it, uh, and we need to make sure that it's paid for and that we have the workforce that is there uh, ready to provide those services. And, and unfortunately, we have challenges on all three fronts that are leading to a lot of the mental health crises. Uh, unfortunately, that consists in America today. Awesome. Any final thoughts? Well, listen, thanks for having me today. Again, it's a, it's a privilege to be in this role. Um, I'm humbled by the opportunity. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the takeaway lesson for me is uh, don't let your shy introverted self prevent you from having an impact on your field, the people around you and the health of America. If I can do it, you can too. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ehrenfeld, thank you for, you know, for your transformational leadership, truly, uh, not just uh, at AMA, but, but in all things healthcare. I know uh, when I look around the, the world, uh, there's so many people that I know you are inspiring, uh, some that have even been guests on, on our show. I know Austin, Austin Chang sp- yeah, regularly speaks about you know, your influence and impact. And, and uh, I think when people see medicine and see you, they do see a future um, you know, because what you've, what you've accomplished, I mean, I can only imagine for your sons and for your children, uh, and your family, how proud they all are because what you're doing is truly amazing. Thank you. Yep, thank you very much. 